energy. The guy told me I was no spring chicken anymore, and that's why my ankle was still hurting. I'm 33, not 133. The passion. The Red Sox handling of Xander Bogarts is a complete organizational failure. The opinions on all your favorite teams. No, not this year, but it's next year where Bill Belichick ends up on the hot seat. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show right here on a not Patriots win Monday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. It's going to be a 90-minute therapy session here. We go up until 7 o'clock, and then at that point we give way to Jazz with George Thomas. So you can get in, as always, on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. It's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. You can watch the show on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and on my Twitter account, as well. We are going to talk about the Patriots. We're going to talk about the Red Sox making a move. We're going to talk about Xander Bogarts penning his goodbye to Red Sox Nation. And then at 6.15, we are going to have what I anticipate to be a very, very interesting conversation. One of, undoubtedly, the biggest plays in the Patriots game yesterday was the Keelan Cole very questionable touchdown reception for the Raiders inside a minute to play. Former NFL head of officiating, Jim Deopolis, is going to stop by and talk with us about that call, about the process of review for that call, about what officials are looking for, about who's actually making the call. Jim Deopolis, former NFL head of officiating, not just a former NFL official, the former head of the officials, is going to be with us at 6.15, and we'll talk about that together. Five, four, three, two. One. And here we go. Opening thoughts in the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. My question of the day is not what was Ramondre Stevenson doing. It's not what was Jacoby Myers doing. That, that's not my first question today. My first question was, in general, what are the Patriots doing running the ball in that situation anyways? Okay, we, we, we can talk plenty about what Stevenson's thinking. We can talk plenty about what was Myers thinking. But before any of that happens, I just want to know, from a play call perspective, What were the Patriots thinking? Because the more I think about it, the more I think about it all day today, the play call that the Patriots had at the end of the game that led to all the craziness was downright horrible. You've heard the play by now. Okay, You know what happened, but here it is. Let's get it all out of our system one more time. Three seconds to go. It's a handoff. Stevenson up the middle. Breaks one tackle at the 50 to the 45. 40. Stiff Army's free at the 35. Drops it behind him to Jacoby Myers, who circles and laterals it. And it's intercepted by the Raiders. Going the other way. Down the sideline at the 20 yard line to the 10 yard line. Touchdown, Vegas. What a wild finish. 
You know the particulars. The Patriots lose. They lose to the Raiders 30-24. to They lose on that walk-off play. It's one of the more weird endings I could ever remember, one of the more memorable endings I can ever remember in NFL history. And I don't understand how that play was allowed to happen. Because I want to know what the Patriots were doing from a play-calling perspective. We're going to unpack the Patriots here in about 10 minutes. So we got plenty of time to break down everything with the game. Right now, I need an answer to this question. Why were the Patriots running the ball? The Once you get past the shock and awe of the play and of the outcome, you realize the play call made zero sense. Somebody... Help me figure out what the Patriots were doing. Why did they run the ball? Why did they run a draw play? Because here's how I see it. Here's how it goes from where I'm sitting. After the game, everybody said it was just supposed to be a draw play. There was supposed to be no tricks. They were just going to run the ball and get to overtime. That's what everybody said. Ramondre Stevenson, Jacoby Myers, David Andrews, Bill Belichick. Everybody said the call was a draw. Just get to overtime. So my question is, why was that the play? Let's examine the facts here. The Patriots started with three seconds left at their own uh, own 45-yard line. So they had 55 yards to go to get to the end zone. I went back and I watched the replay really carefully. The Raiders lined up with five players within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. That meant they had six who were pretty far back defending you know, the deep end of the field, defending the end zone. So my question is, do the Patriots really think that they're going to have Ramondre Stevenson take the draw and run it 55 yards to the house? Do they think that that's going to happen? Remember, It's not supposed to be laterals. It's not supposed to be a trick play. Ramondre Stevenson is supposed to hold the ball for the entirety of the play. Do people think that with all those guys back there defending the end zone, do they think Ramondre Stevenson is going to go 55 yards to the house and score a game-winning touchdown for the Patriots? My guess would be no, and I would say that that seems very, very unlikely that that would happen. So what exactly is supposed to happen at this point? If Ramondre Stevenson is not going to go to the house, then what exactly are we looking for here? There's three seconds left when the play starts. So Stevenson runs 30 yards and gets tackled. Clock runs out. There's no time for a game-winning field goal attempt, and we go to overtime. Ramondre Stevenson runs 30 yards, realizes he's going nowhere, and he just gets down on his own or goes out of bounds. And there's no time left to attempt a game-winning field goal. So what exactly is the upshot here? Look, listen, you don't think he's going to score a touchdown. 55 yards out, he's not running it all the way. So that's out. You don't have any time for no matter what happens to kick a game-winning field goal. So what is the upshot in even running the play period? Are you trying to hope that Ramondre Stevenson is going to run the ball, get 30 yards, draw a face mask, they're going to get the ball for the 15-yard penalty, and you're going to kick a game-winning field goal that way, those seem like very small odds, and even though it's the Raiders, the risk-reward seems not not great enough. You're not going to score a touchdown on the play. You're not going to 
have time to kick a game-winning field goal, and you run the risk of you commit a penalty and get pushed back, and you got to do it again. You run the risk of fumbling traditionally. You run the risk of what happened yesterday. No matter how one in a million it is, you ran the risk of it. Why did the New England Patriots run that play, period? Everybody said after the game, the plan was run the draw, get to overtime. If you just wanted to get to overtime, why are you not kneeling on the ball? Somebody answer me that question. There's three seconds to play in regulation. Three seconds left in the fourth quarter. If your goal is just to get to overtime, why are you not kneeling on it? Because when you kneel the ball, the only risk is that there's a bad snap. When you run the play the Patriots did, you had several other risks there. Why did I even introduce those risks? If all I cared about was get to overtime, why did the Patriots not just kneel on the ball? I've yet to see anybody ask that question. I've only heard Booger McFarland of ESPN even say they should have done that. Why did they not? Why? If you just want to get to overtime, kneel on the ball and let's go have a coin toss to see who gets the ball first in OT. And you know what? If you were going to try to win it, if somehow you did magically think that that play was going to go 55 yards to the house, if you were going to go for it and try to get the win, why are you not throwing a Hail Mary? Why are you not just throwing a Hail Mary? Mac Jones is at his own 45-yard line with likely just three pass rushers. And he's going to have all the, all the ability in the world to get everything in his body into that throw. He's got to throw it 55 yards to the end zone. Why are you not just throwing a Hail Mary? After the game, Bill Belichick said, I mean, after the game, Bill Belichick said, we couldn't throw it that far. Really? Do you not trust your offensive line to hold up against five, your five against their three? Because if so, that's ridiculous. And if you're telling me Mac Jones couldn't throw it that far, I don't believe you. If you're telling me Mac Jones cannot throw it 55 yards against a three-man rush with plenty of time in the pocket and all the ability in the world to get his momentum into it, I don't believe you. And that sounds like throwing Mac Jones under the bus to cover your own bad play calls. Because I got news for you, Mac Jones absolutely can throw it 55 yards. Every day, a couple years ago, when I had Flutie on the show, when I did the podcast with Flutie, we were talking about Cam Newton's shoulder and his lack of arm strength and a Hail Mary at the end of the game. Here's what Doug Flutie told me two years ago about quarterback arm strength. And he did only throw it like 50. I, I thought in my head I, I counted it out to about 53 yards. Okay. I'm 58 years old. I can throw the ball 53 yards. I mean, if Doug Flutie at 58 could throw it that far, Mac Jones can throw it that far. So the Patriots, to me, screwed up the play call in every possible way. Right? We could talk about what is Stevenson doing, what is what is uh, uh, Myers doing, what are the refs doing the play with the Keelan Cole touchdown. We could talk about all of that, and we will. But what are the Patriots doing from a play-calling perspective? Why? Why, why, why are they running the ball? You're not going to score a touchdown on it. You're not going to be able to get a bunch of yards and get down to a field goal position. All you're doing at that point is stat padding and introducing opportunity for problems, which arose. 
If you kneel on the ball, you don't have those same problems and you get to overtime like you want. And if you throw the Hail Mary, maybe it gets caught or maybe you get a P.I. call and that's how you get the ball down the field. But you got better odds of getting P.I. on a Hail Mary than you do on Ramondre Stevenson running and you lucking into a face mask somewhere. I didn't think about it in real time, but when I got in today, I started thinking about it. Why the play call? It just it was unnecessary. And when we have Bob Sosi, the voice of the Patriots, on tomorrow, I'm going to ask him that question. Okay? I'm going to ask Bob Sosi that question. Why? It made zero sense to me the more I thought about it today. It's the Brady Farkas Show. 802-585-3026. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line is open. Again, 802-585-3026. That, the end result never should have happened because the coaching staff never should have put the players in that position. Never should have put the players in that position. As for what this loss does to the Patriots, well, the Patriots are 7-7. Seven and seven. They're now on the outside looking in of the AFC playoff picture. They're in eighth. The Chargers passed them and are now in, uh, now in the top seven. Ironically enough, if the Patriots win their next three games, they are in. If they win their next three games, they're in. I don't believe that's going to happen. I told you going into Friday that I was worried about the Raiders. I told you that all along I thought the Patriots needed to win three of their last four games, and I didn't think they were going to be able to do it. And now they need to win three of their last three, and I don't think they're going to be able to do it. I don't think they're going to be able to do it. They've got the hardest schedule remaining over the last three weeks. Cincy at home, who's rolling now on a short week. Miami, who's going to be desperate and hungry and is probably better than you at this point. And then you get Buffalo on the road, which maybe Buffalo's resting starters and you get lucky, but if they're not resting starters, if they have something to play for, they are 10 times better than you. So as far as I'm concerned, that loss ended the Patriots' season. It's not officially over. They got some help over the weekend, right? Miami lost. The Jets lost. So the Patriots did get some help. But as far as I'm concerned, the Patriots' season is over. We'll talk about it. We will go until the wheels have completely fallen off and the mathematical probabilities are at zero. But right now, to me, it feels like it's done. I think I saw on NBC last night that going into Sunday Night Football, it was a 22% chance of the Patriots making the playoffs. 22%. And it feels lower than that to me today. That is one of the craziest endings to a football game I can remember. It's one of the craziest endings to a Patriots game that I can remember. And it's also completely, completely disheartening. Completely disheartening. And it never, we never should have been in a position for that to happen. Why did the Patriots run the football? We're we're never going to get an answer to that, right? We're never going to get an answer to that. But I, I would love to know it. Charlie says, sounds like the coaches have to go. The buck stops there. On the play calling, yeah, it does. Now, I am not firing Bill Belichick over that. I've told you all along, you hear it there in the intro. I believe next year Bill Belichick is on the hot seat. I believe Bill Belichick needs to make a change at the offensive coaching structure. Maybe Robert Kraft forces his hand to do just that and things get better. 
I don't believe the Patriots players are this bad offensively. I believe the coaching situation is this bad. Patriots don't have studs, but they're not this poor. So Bill Belichick is ultimately responsible for what happens. And why why that was a running play, I, I have no idea. And Bill needs to take responsibility for how the coaching staff has been set up and how the coaching staff is calling plays. But I don't think that he needs to get fired. Changing up the coaching structure, that needs to happen. I don't think everybody has to go, though. Texter says, I am worried the Patriots are going to give up on Mac Jones too soon. The Patriots shouldn't give up on Mac Jones unless they have a better option. Now, we can argue about what a better option is. I've, I've, I've been very transparent about this. I don't believe that Mac Jones is special. I would upgrade from Mac Jones in a heartbeat if I could and if it was so if it was clearly in my favor. Now, let's examine the the possibilities out there right now. Lamar Jackson's going to be a free agent. If you could sign him to a 5-year, 200 million dollar deal, I would do that. And I would trade Mac Jones tomorrow to have Lamar Jackson on that deal. That would be a clear upgrade for me. I don't think that's ever going to become reality because Lamar Jackson's not going to hit free agency in that way, but that like I would do that. Everybody else, it kind of becomes about value, does it not? Mac Jones is average to a little above. I think that's fair. And he's very, very cheap. Do you jettison Mac Jones for average to a little bit above and a lot more expensive? Like, Jimmy Garoppolo, are you are, are you trying to sign Jimmy Garoppolo, who is Mac Jones but older? Are you trying to sign him to a one-year and $15 million deal when you could have Mac Jones on the league minimum? Is that I don't know that that's a better use of resources. I'd probably keep Mac Jones over that. Geno Smith has played great with Seattle this year. He's played awesome. They're talking about him getting... million a year. Is Geno better than Mac? Yeah, he is. Would I rather have Mac at league minimum or Geno at two for 60? I'd probably say Mac. So I don't want the Patriots to give up on Mac Jones either. I don't think they should give up on Mac Jones, especially when it's not clear to me that there is a better option out there. And you look at the Patriots in the draft, they're going to be between you know, 15 and 22 come the draft anyways, or yeah, 14 and 21 come draft time, and they're going to be in the same position where they took Mac Jones a couple of years ago. They're not going to be high enough up to get a top quarterback. You know, they're not getting Bryce Young from position number 16. They're just not. They'd have to lose out, and maybe they end up at like 12 or something. But you look now, I mean, let's look and see here. Um the draft order as we stand right now. I mean, right now the Patriots are at 16th. They could probably get as high as 11th, it sounds like it looks like maybe potentially. I mean, the ninth spot right now is five and nine. Two full spot, two full games behind the Patriots. I don't think you're getting up that high. Five and eight is Green Bay. We'll see what they do tonight against the Rams. Then it's Vegas and Jacksonville. We each have 11 
um, at least have six wins. Vegas, Jacksonville have six wins. Then Houston, the Cleveland picked at Pittsburgh. I, I mean, it feels like the Patriots are kind of in that. Uh, they're going to be in that 12 to, to 18 range. And that a quarterback in that spot. I don't know that you're not just getting Mac 2.0 and just resetting it. I, I, so I don't know. I, I'd move on from Mac if there was a clear upgrade. And I just don't think there is. It's the Brady Farkas show on WDEV. Lamar Jackson would be a, would be a clear upgrade. That I would do. Trading for Jordan Love, who's an unknown commodity and has two years left on his rookie deal, not a, not an upgrade. I mean, look around the league, right? Baker Mayfield, sl- average to slightly above. And going to be more expensive than Mac, probably. I'd keep Mac over him. I'm looking at quarterbacks that are going to become available. Mac is a better situation at his dollars than a lot of them. Lamar Jackson is the one that's not. Right? Mac Jones or Daniel Jones? I'd rather have Mac Jones, given what Daniel Jones is going to cost, which is more. Mac Jones or Sam Darnold? Mac at league minimum or Sam Darnold at one year for $9 million. I'd, I'd probably rather have Mac there, too. So, it is, uh, it's tough sledding right now for the Patriots in general. I was going to unpack the Patriots now. We're going to unpack the Patriots at 6.05 before Jim Deopolis comes on. The reason why I'm going to push it is just because I got more things than eight minutes will allow us to get to here. So, um, we'll kind of pivot here. And I just want to mention this real quick. This will be the one time, or maybe I think this will be the second time in the last month that I mentioned World Cup soccer. Okay, and again, I'm just taking this to the bottom of the hour. We're going to get back to unpacking the Patriots and then Jim Deopolis coming up after 6 o'clock. World Cup final yesterday, yesterday morning, Argentina beat France in penalty kicks. I got to tell you, the last 10 minutes of regulation in that soccer match were some of the best sports theater I've ever seen. Okay? It was a 2-2 game at that point. Both teams had chances. You could feel the urgency in the building. I, I had no dog in the fight, and you could feel the urgency. You had a battle of an aging superstar in Messi looking for that first taste. You had a battle for the guy he's probably going to pass the court torch to in Mbappe for France. So that game had everything that we love about sports. It had stakes. It had consequence. It had it had one team blowing a lead. It had one team giving a comeback. It had the aging star. It had the young guy. That was great theater. The last 10 minutes of that soccer match were unbelievable to watch. Some of the Best late-game stuff I've ever watched in any sport. That said, that last 10 minutes of soccer is not going to make me a soccer fan. It's not. The last 10 minutes were great. Extra time, overtime was very good. Both teams scored. Penalty kicks, I know you all hate them. I like them, at least in soccer. I thought that was riveting. Drama, consequence, high stakes, thrill of victory, agony of defeat. I loved it all. That was a great soccer match. But it's not going to make me a soccer fan moving forward. I mean, I put out kind of satirically on Twitter like, man, couldn't soccer be this fun all the time? 
And people all responded to me, oh, Brady, it is. You should give it a chance. Soccer's awesome all the time. And then I saw people taking victory laps saying, hey, pretty rough day for the soccer is boring crowd. Ha, ha, ha. No. Soccer is not always as fun as the last 10 minutes of what I watched yesterday, plus overtime, plus penalty kicks. It's not. Okay? Soccer is great. Every sport to me is great when there is something huge on the line, right? It's why we watch the Olympics. I don't care about women's swimming or about men's diving or about biathlon or even about the 100-meter dash. I don't care about any of that stuff. But when it's at the Olympics and you know what's gone into it for those competitors and you see Real drama play out on the world stage. I am glued to it every four years. I don't watch figure skating in the off time non-Olympics. I don't watch swimming non-Olympics. I don't watch track non-Olympics. I don't watch international basketball non-Olympics. And I love basketball. Right? When it matters and means something, it becomes really fun. Yesterday's game was really fun. It's not gonna, it's not that fun. Every time soccer's on television for the next four years, it's not. Checking out the Copa America Cup or the MLS Cup or the CONCACAF whatever, I'm, I'm not going to watch it. I promise you. Yesterday was great. But it was great because of the stage it was on to me. It was great because of what it meant. It was great to me because of the storyline. You don't get that in your average run-of-the-mill soccer match. And look, that's not just exclusive to soccer. I'm sure there are plenty of people who tune in to Game 7 of the World Series and say, man, that was awesome. Is baseball always this fun? And the answer is, you know what? It's not. Game 7 of the World Series is different than the Marlins and the Nationals on a Monday in June. That's just true. Okay? The NHL, everyone's like, wow, the Stanley Cup playoffs are the best in sports. Stanley Cup playoffs are awesome. Game 7, Stanley Cup finals. Is it always this fun? No. Okay? The Coyotes and the Senators on a Monday in February, not as fun as Game 7 of the Stanley Cup finals. Yesterday was awesome. From minute 83 and on, I watched every minute the rest of the game. I didn't watch the first 83 minutes. I didn't even see Argentina get up 2-0, nor did I see the two goals France scored to come back. But from 2-2 on at 83 minutes in, excellent television, excellent theater. I'm still not going to become a soccer fan. I'm still not going to become a soccer fan. And I'm sorry if that breaks your heart, okay? I'm absolutely, I'm not, I, I, I'm absolutely not going, like, I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings. Because it was fun. It's just not for me moving forward. Just like baseball is not going to be for you. I expect there are going to be plenty of you that are going to tune in at the Super Bowl that don't love the NFL. Plenty of you that are going to tune in at the World Series that don't love baseball. And plenty of you that are going to watch March Madness and fill out a bracket without having watched a game all season. We love big events. We love big events. And that's what I was tuned in for. And because the event mattered, I was invested. The Chicago Fire and the Seattle Sounders on Monday night at 11 o'clock in July, not watching. I'll tell you, I watch the, I'll watch some of the WNBA finals. Absolutely. I'm not watching every game. I'm not watching every NBA game non-Celtics. So, 
these things make an impact when they really matter. And you cannot replicate what we had yesterday except for the World Cup and the Olympics to a lesser degree because the Olympics, I believe, you have to use amateurs mostly. Or at least some amateurs, at least on the men's side. Not on the women's side. The women's side can send their best. But the men's side, you have to use more amateurs. But I was happy for Messi. I'm a sucker for a storyline. And a guy who, um, at 35 years old, had been knocking on the door and he's waiting to fill, you know, get the validation and fill out kind of, you know, the, fill out the resume. I'm all for it. And he does it. Just like I was cool when LeBron won the title and got that off his back, Clayton Kershaw, even David Price with the Red Sox. John Elway. I'm for people who overcome obstacles and who, uh, who finally get the one they've been looking for. And that right there was Brady Farkas talking soccer. Right there. Store it in your podcast memory banks. That was me talking soccer. We will not do it again until the Women's World Cup in two years or so, whenever that is. So it's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. CBS National News Update. And then we will unpack the Patriots and we'll get you ready for Jim Dayopolis, the former NFL head of officiating. That all comes up in the 6 o'clock hour. That's next right here on WDEV, AM and FM. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Jim Deopolis, the former NFL head of officiating, is going to be with me coming up uh, in about 10 minutes. So Jim Deopolis, again, will be with me here in about 10 minutes. I cannot wait to talk to him about the Keelan Cole. Very questionable catch there. Uh you know, against the Patriots yesterday, which we're going to cover here momentarily in Unpacking the Patriots. So go ahead, everybody. Fire up the music. And you know what comes next. Which Patriots popped? To the 30, to the 20. He is in. Zone. Bound. Pick six. Touchdown. Patriots. And which ones flopped? Jones steps up with a pocket, unloads a deep ball, and it's intercepted. That'll put the cherry on top. We unpack the Patriots now on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Patriots beaten by the Raiders 30-24. to They fall in the final play of the game. They're now 7-7. Seven and seven. Usually we alternate good and bad from unpacking the Patriots, but I don't know. We might just have too much bad, so let's just... I'll start on a good note, though. I will start on a good note. The good. The good. The good. The good. Good for Jacoby Myers and good for Ramondre Stevenson. I can forgive mistakes. I can forgive miscues. What I cannot forgive as a fan or as a media personality is I cannot forgive a lack of accountability. I hate when players are not accountable for their actions. Like Gio Bernard yesterday of the Buccaneers not talking to the media after the botched fake punt against the Bengals. I can't forgive that. But Ramondre Stevenson and Jacoby Myers talked to the media afterwards, and I have huge respect for that. Right? I have huge respect for that. I think we can all appreciate when somebody in their worst moments stands up, looks the guy, looks the camera in the face, and owns it. And they did. 
Ramondre Stevenson said he went rogue on the play and, and didn't follow directions. Jacoby Myers said, I need to be more responsible with the football. Said, look, I, I have the ball in my hands because people trust me. Said, I tried to do too much. Said he needed to be smart. Both players tried to deflect blame off of somebody else and put it on themselves. I have respect for that. Now, being accountable, being accountable doesn't help you in the standings. It doesn't help your fantasy team. It doesn't help your gambling bet, but whatever. So you may not care much about it, but I do. Jacoby Myers, Ramondre Stevenson, they're two guys that I can rock with. Two young guys that I can build around on this team. They showed great leadership qualities in owning this. They did not duck responsibility. They owned it, and I love that. And you know what? I can forgive it. It was a bad play. It was a regrettable play. They both screwed it up. They both afterwards said the right thing. Here's Stevenson. I think uh, the coach gave us a play just to, you know, kind of run the timeout, just get down. It was only a couple seconds on the clock, so I feel like I should have just, you know, did just that and just got down. I mean, the play started off with me with the ball, so if I didn't pitch it back to him, Jacoby wouldn't have the chance to do that. So, you know, I'll take full, full responsibility for the, for the play, and, you know, I just got another situation, just just, I just got to know what's going on in the game. Man. Accountable, leadership qualities, I can rock with that. And by the way, not just to mention that, these guys both played really, really well. Remember, they were both questionable. They both were injured last week. Uh, Jacoby Myers didn't play last week because of concussion. He came out, he led the team in receiving, 47 yards receiving. Ramondre Stevenson ran it for 172 yards despite missing most of the Monday night game with an ankle injury. He came back on a short week and had 172 yards rushing. And it's cruel that the two best players on the Patriots offense this year are the two guys that screwed it up. But they went to the, to the podium. They said the right things. And I, I can forgive it. I'm not happy about it. I know what it means for the Patriots playoff chances. But as for those players, they have a big time. Big time level of respect for me. It's the Brady Farkas Show. We're unpacking the Patriots here on DEV. The bat, the bat, the bat. Yeah, there was a lot of bad in this one. There was a lot of bad in this one. This whole thing, this whole last play conversation, this is just a continuation of everything we've seen this year, really. The final play was surprising and jarring, but really nothing that happens situationally with this team that's bad should surprise you. I mean, look at all that went wrong for the Patriots. All they did wrong that they never used to do wrong, that now they do repeatedly. Okay? The last play was a huge screw-up. We know that. We've covered that. But the Patriots had a punt blocked right before the half. We could have gone into halftime with the Pats down 10-3 and said it was 17-3, and you're playing massive catch-up. The Patriots had first and goal at the two and once again did not score a touchdown. You had Mac Jones overthrowing a wide open Jonu Smith. You had Mac Jones throwing the Malcolm Butler interception route to Nelson Aguilar and it getting knocked away because the ball was too high. You had the Patriots call two timeouts in that sequence. They burned two timeouts with first and goal at the two. How does this keep happening? The Patriots never used to beat themselves, and now they do it consistently. 
Mac misses throws. They screw up the timeout situation. They go for it on fourth down, and they get a, a, a false start penalty because Mac went too early. They end up having to kick the field goal. Another day with red zone problems, another day with pre-snap penalties, and another day with screwed up timeouts. Finally, you not only did you struggle in the red zone, you struggled in third down. I don't know too many teams that can go two for 13 on third down and be good. Two for 13. Let me explain something to you. I'm going to make this crystal clear. The Patriots don't have explosive players, right? They don't. They don't have explosive offense. The idea of them throwing up a two-play and 80-yard drive, not happening. So if you're not doing that, what do you need to do? You need to churn first down after first down after first down and just waltz your way down the field meticulously. They're not doing that either. Two of 13 on third down is unacceptable. You look at the top six teams in the NFL in in terms of third down conversion rate, they're all playoff teams. You look at the teams at the very bottom of the league, Washington right now might be a playoff team. Other than that, it's the Patriots, Denver, and Houston, the three worst teams in the NFL, Patriots, Denver, and Houston. You cannot be two of 13 on third down. Where else did the Patriots go wrong? Oh, they had this game won in the fourth quarter, right? It's 24-17. There's two minutes to play. The Raiders have no timeouts. It's fourth and 10. And the Patriots allowed Derek Carr to hit Matt Collins. I mean... You talk about beating yourself. The Patriots never used to do it. It is They are the definition of it now. Blocked, get a punt blocked, allow a fourth and 10, burn your timeouts, screw up in the red zone, go two of 13 on third down, and you make that last bad play. The play call was horrible. The execution from Ramondre Stevenson and Jacoby Myers was horrible. I mean, this is what we've seen all year all year long and everybody knows it but on field execution again it's on field execution in that instance a bad idea but who's in charge of orchestrating the decision making of the players it's all shared but it's mind numbing and the team is seven and seven it's going to be tough for them to recover i mean it is just it is hard man it is it is really really hard to watch the patriots do this to themselves over and over and over again Kyle in South Burlington, Brady, Jacoby Myers had a concussion. Do you think he could suffer from foggy thinking? I've never had a concussion. I'm sure it's possible, but he was cleared. He missed a game. He went through the protocols. I got to think he was good enough to play. And I'm not going to speculate on medical issues beyond that. Uh, All right, unpacking the Patriots. Let's continue on. Jim Deopolis just got in touch with me. He's running a few minutes late, which is fine. I need a few extra minutes. The good, the good, the good. The Kyle Duggar play was awesome. Right? The Kyle Duggar play was awesome. The field goal, that's a good first half. Oh! Picked off! Touchdown! Kyle Duggar! I mean, Duggar picked off that screen pass that was intended for for, uh, Devontae Adams. That play was all about film study. That play was all about film study. We see guys jump routes all the time, you know, Quarterback's going to throw a curl and a DB jumps the route. That's a great play, but it's it's watching what's unfolding in front of you. Kyle Duggar didn't have time to do that. He he saw a formation. He saw a cue. He jumped that route before the ball was even thrown. 
That is incredible. Film study, preparation, and anticipation. That's one of the more impressive plays I've ever seen. And what do we say? Patriots offense is really, really struggling, right? It's really, really struggling. If your offense is going to be that bad, your defense better step up and make plays, and your defense stepped up and made a play. Kyle Duggar got the Patriots back into the game. They were down 17-3 at the half. They had punted early in the in the second half, and then they go and they get that pick six, and now you're back in the game with some life, and it's 17-10. Unpacking the Patriots, let's go uh, another bad one here, please. The bat, the bat, the bat. Yeah, the Keelan Cole touchdown catch call was atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. The Patriots were up 24-17. 40 seconds to go. Derek Carr to Keelan Cole ties the game at 24. He was absolutely out of bounds. It was an atrocious call as far as I'm concerned. 37 seconds to go. Snap to Carr. Carr floating one downfield, taking an end zone shot, turning, and making the catch. Touchdown, Keelan Cole. The Raiders, who were down to the last gasp on a fourth and ten, convert, move downfield, and go 81 yards, and they're a point away from tying it with 32 seconds to go. That was not a touchdown. That was not a touchdown. We're, Jim Deopolis is going to be calling in here momentarily. That's the call we're talking to about. It was not a touchdown. I think it seemed pretty damn clear to everybody watching that Keelan Cole was out of bounds. And that play, which tied the game, helped change the outcome of the game. Bad call. I mean, I get why in real time it was called a touchdown, because, but the automatic review should have overturned it. I thought clearly his foot was on the white there. It was part of a bad week for the official for the officials in general across multiple games. Not a good call. It looked like his toe was on the white paint. Just a bad, bad call. That said, you know where I'm going with this. I do not believe that that call cost the Patriots the game. Yes, it it helped alter the outcome. It did. It had an impact. But it did not cost you the game. I've said this a million times. One call does not cost a team a game. All that other stuff I said a minute ago, that cost the Patriots the game. Getting a punt blocked, that helped cost you the game. Two of 13 on third down helped cost you a game. Missing touchdowns in the red zone helped cost you a game. That play doesn't help, but it's not the reason you lost. And then obviously, the last play at the end of the game, that helped you, lo- helped you, lo- helped you lose the game. The Patriots did this to themselves, and I will not have the refs being slandered for it and saying it's only on them. That call was part of it, but I listed off five or six other things the Patriots did poorly. I mean, it's more about that than about the officials. Uh, Tex says, uh, that play reminds me of the Gary Premium attempted a pass. I'm not old enough to remember that, but... I think about some of the more wild endings that I do remember. Um, I mean, well, Patriots losing to the Dolphins, right? A couple years ago, 2019, the Miami Miracle, the Kenyon Drake touchdown. That was crazy. Pats coming back from 28-3 in the Super Bowl. That's just a crazy game, not so much crazy ending. But Stephon Diggs, the Minneapolis Miracle in the NFC playoffs against the Saints, where he catches that ball, takes it to the house of the buzzer against New Orleans. Um... The Immaculate Reception, Franco Harris. There was the Herm Edwards play, Miracle in the Meadowlands. Like, these are just some things that I 
that I know from history and ones that I've seen personally, I don't remember Gary Apremian. But Texter also says Keelan Cole was way out. Yeah, I thought he was out as well. I thought he was out as well. So uh, not a not a good play, not a good call, I should say. But again, I don't believe it cost you the game. Uh, one more quick good one. The offensive line was certainly better. The Patriots allowed no sacks today. That or uh, yesterday, that was great. They ran it for more than 200 yards. Ramondre Stevenson was awesome in the run game. So the offensive line was a lot better. Uh, what wasn't better was Mac Jones again. The regression and the slide continues. He missed a couple of throws. The play calling again was questionable. But, I mean, Mac Jones was 13 for 31. 13 for 31. In a league where it seems very easy to complete passes, 13 for 31 is, like, unfathomable to me. He threw for 112 yards. He threw for 56 in the first half and 56 in the second half. He was 5 of 16 in the second half. I mean, 5 of 16. Aye. Aye. Offensive line better. Kyle Duggar, great play. Mac Jones, ugh. Play calling, ugh. Situational awareness, ugh. The Kalen Cole call, ugh. Jim Deopolis, former NFL head of officiating. He's going to join me next. He's going to talk to me about the Keelan Cole call, what goes into it, and what did he see from his vantage point watching at home. The former NFL head of officiating. Jim Deopolis next on the Brady Farkas Show on DE. Make your opinion heard by texting onto the Brady Farkas Show at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV-AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Texter says another wild ending, 2003 Saints and Jaguars. I I can't say that one comes to, to mind off the top of my head, but the texter adds in, the Saints had a lateral touchdown like the Dolphins did against the Patriots and then missed the game-tying extra point. And that would have been crazy because in 2003, the extra point would have only been 19 yards. Like, we didn't move it back to 33 yards until five or six years ago or whatever. So, uh, to miss a 19-yard chip shot, that would have been uh, that would have been bad. Um, man, I'm trying to think of other great NFL endings. Um, and I'm sure more will come to me, but the fail Mary, the Seahawks against the Packers where there was the Golden Tate simultaneous possession, that was a weird ending, one of the weirder endings in NFL history. But, yeah, yesterday was uh, was terrible. So, uh, all right, I want to go out to the phone line, and I want to talk more about this Keelan Cole play. So the, 24, the, the touchdown that made it 24-24 was obviously a huge swing in the game here, and uh, I want to go out to the phone line and bring on Jim Deopolis. Jim Deopolis is the former NFL head of officiating. Not just a former NFL ref, the former NFL head of officiating. Before there was Dean Blandino on your TV or Gene Steratore or Mike Pereira, there was Jim Deopolis. Jim, thank you for being with us today on this well, tense Monday for me. How are you? I'm great, Brady. Great to be with you. Thank you. You know, I'm going to ask you about the Keelan Cole touchdown play in a second, the one that everyone's talking about, but the ending to that game was insane. What did you think when you saw that, and what is the craziest ending you remember being a part of? 
I'll tell you, I have never seen anything like that before in my life watching football. Um, it was it, that was just the craziest ending. I, I don't even know what the Patriots were trying to accomplish on that play. Uh, they had the game going into overtime. There was nothing that they could have done to change the outcome of that game at that point. And to throw the ball in that in that vicinity and, and to throw it backwards like that, it just didn't make any sense at all to me. Uh, I, I can I just can't even put anything in in, uh, in the same uh, same sense as that one. That was really crazy. Yeah, unbelievable. And the Patriots had a, had a tough loss a couple of years ago in Miami where the Dolphins went down the field and, and succeeded on a play like that. So the Pats have been a part of a couple of these crazy ones in Decembers in the last few years. But, yeah, last night uh, just shocking and gutting. Now let's get to the officiating aspect of this. And I have a bunch of questions about the Keelan Cole touchdown, and I kind of want to ask them in a sequential order here. So I guess my first question is – on the field, when that play is called a touchdown, is that called a touchdown at the time because it is genuinely believed by the official that it's a touchdown, or is it called a touchdown because it's just easier to call it a touchdown in terms of the subsequent review process? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I would hope that the official is making that call uh, on what he observes on the field. You know, he's watching – He's watching that the receiver gets his feet down inbounds. He's watching that he keeps control of the ball. Uh, and basically what you try to do on that is you try to make it as correct a decision as you can make. You're not, you're not guessing at it. You, you've got to make a, a decision. And the great thing about the National Football League is that all those uh, touchdown plays are, are reviewed so they do have an opportunity to, to review that play. So as an official, you want to give the player the benefit of the doubt as much as possible, especially on those those very, those close calls that are uh, that are close to the sideline that uh, that have a, that are going to be questioned. So it's called a touchdown. It subsequently gets reviewed, and the review gets held up there. When the when the official goes to review. What exactly is happening? Who's talking to them? What angles are they looking at, et cetera? Well, basically what is happening is that call goes to New York. They're looking at it. You know, there's a replay official in the uh, at the game that is also talking to the referee at that time, and they're looking at it. But the decision is made in New York uh, with, a, with a head of officiating, uh, Walt Anderson. He's looking at that, uh, at that play. They've got different angles. And they've got to make the decision, and they've got to see something that is clear and obvious to reverse what's called on the field. Um, so, what you're trying to do as an official is you're you're going to try to give the the player the benefit of the doubt as much as possible, unless it's clear and obvious to you that he's out of bounds. If it's a tight one like it was yesterday, then you're going to go with with the catch if you're not a hundred percent sure that he did step on the line or he did not control the football all the way through the process of the catch. You know, we talk all the time in baseball about seeing the chalk come up. Ah, we saw it get white, and, and then the, we see the replay of the foul line, and there's a little bit of white that's taken, you know, that's taken out of the grass there. Um, because we didn't see the white come up yesterday, is that part of the reason the call holds up as a touchdown? I, I really... What my feeling is is that the official made the call that it was a touchdown. I think when it went to New York, uh, when they looked at it based on the angles that they had, there was nothing clear and obvious that uh, 
gave them the opportunity to reverse the call. Um, you know, I've looked at shots. Um, you know, being a Patriots fan, I kind of uh, leaned to the side that I thought it was out of bounds. Mm-hmm. But again, as a as a supervisor, as somebody up in the office that's trying to make a decision on that, they've got to have a, a clear and obvious shot that shows that that foot is on the line. And I don't believe they had that shot. Former NFL head of officiating Jim Deopolis with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Um, you know, the league is, I feel like this always happens, but the league is under a lot of pressure with the officiating. And the question that always comes up is, why are the officials not full-time, Jim? So talk to me a little bit about the training. Should it be a full-time position? Well, you know, Bray, we've talked about that for years and years. Uh, back when I was even on the field, they talked they talked about that, about being full-time. Um, first of all, I'm not sure if full-time is going to make officiate officials any better. Uh, the officials that are working right now, uh, the ones that put in the extra time, the, they are compensated very well for what they're doing. They don't need to have another job. Uh, they're able to uh, live on the income that they make as an official. So, you know, you would consider them full-time. Um, again, the league the league feels that they, they need to be where they are. They don't need to be full-time because it's not going to make them any better. Are they going to still miss calls? Sure, they're going to miss calls. But being full-time is not going to make them any better. The ones that are better spend full-time on it. Given that there is so much at stake in terms of competitive integrity, but given also there's so much financially at stake, especially considering how valuable the league is and how in bed the league is with gambling, how much pressure is now on officials? Well, there's always pressure on officials. Uh, And it's mostly the pressure you put on yourself when you're out there. Uh, You are striving to be the best at your position. the officials that are on the field are supposedly the best, the best in the country, the best football officials that there are available. Uh, so, as one of those one of those 121 officials, uh, you you feel that you know you want to perform at the at 100 percent every time, uh, and you question every call that you make. You you're out there working. You want to make sure, but you want to be correct every time. So there's, there's an awful lot of pressure. Probably the league doesn't put as much pressure as you think that they would on them. I think the play, the officials put enough pressure on themselves to be correct and make sure they get the calls correct. You know, I know that there is a, a media availability after the game with a with the head official and the NFL pool reporter. So the officials do get questioned after the game. But um, do you think that officials should have to answer questions in the way that players and coaches do after the game? Well, I, I think the, the, there's, a, there's a reason why the officials are out there. And I think they need to be able to justify their calls. So often uh, a call is made and there's a lot of questions by the announcers, by uh, the fans. And, they, and the officials, all they are trying to do is a, when they talk to the pool reporter is they're trying to clarify a call that, was, that occurred out there. Um, they do the best job that they can on that. Sometimes the, the referee who has to be the, uh, who reports to the pool reporter, you know, he's not the one that made the call. So he's got to get the, uh, information secondhand from the official that actually makes the call. 
but they try to give as much information as they can and be as clear and concise as possible. Uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. You know, I am. I have always been in this camp, right? I am never in the, oh, the refs cost us the game camp. I, I don't think that one call ever decides a game. You look at that game yesterday, the Patriots were bad in the red zone again, and they screwed up a chance to get a touchdown before halftime. They had a punt block. That punt blocked. They still made that play after that touchdown call. That caught, you know, that, that was the game-ending uh, fumble recovery for a touchdown by Chandler Jones. So the Patriots did plenty to lose that game on their own as far as I am concerned. Concerned. But you as an official, when you have made what is an important and controversial call, what is going through your mind after the game? Is Do you ever think, like, did I have an impact on the outcome? The first thing you think is, gosh, did I make the correct call? And I can tell you, the officials, as soon as the game's over, they they go to their little recorder that they get. They get the uh, a DVD of the game. They can see their calls as soon as they get into the locker room, and they are back there checking them because um, it's really important to them to make the correct call. And if uh, if they miss it, they know they miss it. And I can tell you, it, it uh, kind of sits with you the whole week if you miss that call. Was there ever a player that was tough to deal with as an official? You know, Tom Brady gets the rep as being pretty whiny, frankly, but uh, was there ever a player that you found it tough to deal with? You know, I, I, I kind of had a great relationship with players. I, I'll tell you, you know, guys like uh, Deion Sanders and uh, Andre Risen, the, the guys that I kind of dealt with when I was in the league, uh, you know, you, you have to try to establish a rapport with them. Uh, you cannot be just robotic out there and go through the motions. You've got to have a little bit of a personality. And, uh, you know, I think they're, they're, they're missing that a little bit right now in the NFL. Uh, players have got to get a little bit better, uh, a little bit better communication with the with the players and with the coaches because that kind of it kind of you know breaks the ice a little bit, especially when there's a controversial call that you can talk to the official, the players with. You know, all those years as an NFL official, then the the head of the officials. There's got to be a go-to story that you break out at cocktail parties. So, what is that go-to story? Well. You know, Brady, it has to be the first call that I made ever in the uh, <laughs> National Football League. Uh, I made a call uh, against the uh, Houston Oilers in a game against Tampa Bay, and uh, Jerry Glanville was the coach of the uh, Houston Oilers at the time. Uh, and after I made the call, he he asked the, the referee at the time, he said, I want to talk to the college board. Bring the college boy over here because it was my first game. And uh, I went over there. And as you can imagine, I was I was pretty nervous. Uh, I couldn't hardly, you know, open my mouth. And, uh, he, he, you know, he said, uh, you know, this isn't, a, this isn't a homecoming game. This is the NFL. You know what NFL stands for. And I was shaking my head. And before I could get a word out, Jerry said to me, not for long. If you keep making those chicken crap calls, we're both going to be selling groceries. And that was kind of my indoctrination into the National Football League many years ago. And uh, it, it established a great uh, rapport that I had with J- Jerry over all the years. And uh, it was kind of a fun thing. And I, I get to see it on uh, on clips every now and then on ESPN. But uh, it was kind of a fun thing. And that uh, kind of my, uh, you know, my again, as I said, my indoctrination into the National Football League.
you know, there was one last thing I wanted to ask you that I, I forgot to a second ago about the Keelan Cole play. There was a, 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 I don't know if it was a joke or if it's true, but going around social media that that game was supposed to be on Sunday night football and it got flexed out into the 405 time slot yesterday. Is it true that there would be more camera angles available to the officials if that game had been on Sunday night? Is that true? 100% true. Why is that? Absolutely. How? How? Is, why are the same camera angles not available at 405 as at 815? <laughs> that, that's a that's a question you'd have to ask the National Football League. But you know, when you it's it's kind of like uh, you know when you work the Super Bowl, there's you know there's a there's a hundred cameras out there at you know different angles. It's just it's just the different games, uh, you know, and, and they all they all have a, a pretty good re, you know number of games. But when the game goes to national TV on Sunday Night Football. Um, you know, NBC does a pretty good job with all the different camera angles, a little bit better than just the local TV stations that would uh, that would run those games. So, yeah, that that's a, uh, a a true statement. Jim Deopolis, former NFL head of officiating. That's right. Before Gene Steratore and Dean Landino and Mike Pereira, there was Jim. Jim, we appreciate the time and the perspective on everything. Thanks for clearing some things up for us. I appreciate it. Have a happy holidays, and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, well, definitely happy holidays. And I I love talking to Jim Deopolis. I, I don't know if we've had Jim Deopolis on this show before. I think we did once back in 2020, right, right when the show first started. But I have talked to Jim Deopolis before multiple times on other outlets. He is awesome. One of my all-time favorite guests. I think like Rick DiPietro, the old Islanders goalie, might be my all-time favorite guest. Jim is up there. Just the information, the stories, and he tells it to you straight. He, look, he thought the Keelan Cole play was not a touchdown also. Simply he said, I thought I, I leaned to the side of thinking he was out of bounds. And he talked to us about the process. He talked to us about the review process. He talked to us about, he reminded us that, hey, the guys on the field don't end up with the final call. New York is telling them, what the call is. And and that's something when you think about your anger in the moment at a call, remember it's not actually the guys, not actually the officials on the field who are getting the final call there. So uh, Jim Deopolis was awesome. And it's disappointing that that call did not go the Patriots way because it was the wrong call. Like it was the wrong call. As far as I'm concerned, it was a bad call and it impacted the game. It did not cost the Patriots the game. The Patriots did a good job at costing themselves the game with general incompetence in several areas. Like, that's where the game was lost. The game was not lost because of the Keelan Cole touchdown. It wasn't helped, but it wasn't lost because of that. It was lost because of the end of the game play, red zone execution, third down execution, allowing a fourth and ten, all of the above. Getting a punt blocked. I mean, look, on the, the punt, my God, we talk about this stuff. Jabril Peppers is looking backwards at the punter. He's not even looking at the play. And the ball is snapped, and he's not ready for it. The, the, my, just frustrating as all hell. Just frustrating as all hell. Tex says, uh, why did this not get figured out? But you're right, it should not have come down to one play. I still think of the Rams versus Saints non-call in the playoffs. You know, seriously, that is the play that started my the one-person crusade I'm on for this. Okay? And, and I'm going to forget the particulars here, but Rams-Saints was a couple of years ago. 
It was the year the Rams went to the Super Bowl, I believe, against the Patriots, in which the Patriots ended up winning that game 13-3. to It was the NFC Divisional game, I think. I don't believe it was the NFC title game. But the Rams were on the road to the Saints, and there was the pass interference call. I remember we had the, the one year where we could challenge pass interference. My goodness, what a cluster that was. But we had the one year where we could challenge pass interference. And there was a play where they thought the Rams receiver, like it was clear that he committed pass interference and it wasn't called. And everyone's like, oh my God, the refs blew the game for the, blew the game for the Saints. And I'm like, look, as I recall, the Saints got down like 10, nothing in the first quarter. The Saints had two fumbles and the Saints still got the ball back after that play in overtime and screwed it up. So I, that play right there, that game started me on this one play doesn't cost a team. Because I saw all the chances that the Saints had in that game, and everyone was saying it was the refs' fault. It wasn't the refs' fault. The refs have impacts. The refs matter. But, you know, look, in Major League Baseball, if an umpire misses strike three in the eighth inning, but you've left 14 men on base, sorry, you had chances. You absolutely had chances. Tex says, Brady, you're not on a one-man crusade. I'm on your side 100%. That's my guy Steve over in Faston. Well, thank you very much, Steve. You, me, and Ralph, I guess, can uh, can be together on this. Because everybody's favorite pastime is blaming the refs. And look, I'm not above it. That call yesterday was wrong. I would prefer the call be right. And if the Patriots had played a perfect game beyond that call, I'd be harping on it more. But they so clearly didn't. But they didn't deserve that call. And frankly, I've always heard this too. If you need 100% of the calls to go your way, you're just not very good. Right? Like, that's just the truth. If you need every call to go your way, you're just not very good. I think back to this, to my Seahawks, right? Seahawks were playing the Raiders a couple weeks ago. And the Seahawks ended up losing in overtime to the Raiders, ironically enough, and Josh Jacobs ran like an 85-yard touchdown in overtime. Well, with about two minutes to play in the game, Josh Jacobs fumbled. Like, deep in his own territory, he clearly fumbled. And the the refs did not give the Seahawks the ball. And then the Raiders scored a touchdown. And you know what? That was a bad call. And the Seahawks deserved to have it. But you know what? They also... Threw a pick, allowed 240 yards rushing, had the ball with the end of regulation and a chance to win and didn't, had a ball in overtime and a chance to win and didn't, got their offensive line just manhandled. It, it's not, it never comes down to just the refs. Texter says, get rid of replay and Belichick. Well, okay, I like replay. I just like it when it gets it right. I like the NFL to figure out what a catch is too. Next time we have Jim on, we'll have to ask him that question. Not a great Sunday for the Patriots. Not a great weekend for the Red Sox. We'll finish out the show with that with that news. That's coming up next here on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Reminder, I am out tomorrow. I am going on assignment tomorrow. I am going to be at the UVM basketball game tomorrow. The game is at 2 o'clock at Patrick Jim against Toledo. And it's going to be a really good game, actually. So I am going to be there. 
here's the, here's the deal. I had a bunch of days off still to use. They told me that I needed to use them. So I'm taking all of next week off, but I'm also taking tomorrow off, and I'm going to go to the UVM game. So I'm going to go to the, see the uh, see the Cats, who are 6-7, and seven, looking to get to 7-7. Seven and seven. Toledo's really good, as I just said. I think they're 7-4 and four this year out of the Mid-American Conference. I think they won their conference a year ago. They've got two of the top 30 scorers in the country. So Toledo would come into this game, certainly, as the betting favorite. I'm excited to see this game. So here's what's going to happen tomorrow. Nick Mumley is going to host the show in my place. Nick is a name that you should know, but if you don't, Nick is an up-and-comer in this business. You hear him sometimes on DEV and on LVB doing high school basketball. He's been on this station for the last couple of years doing Thunder Road. He is, I mean, racing is his thing. He hosts the Inside Groove podcast. He's been a guest on this show and the afternoon news service before. He is really, really good at racing. And he's, he like, nobody that I know outside of Ken Squire, knows more about Thunder Road than than Nick Mumley does. So racing is his thing. But he also is well-versed in just how to do talk radio as well as all four major sports. So Nick's going to be on uh, tomorrow hosting the show in my place. I'm going to call in tomorrow and be a guest on the show for a few minutes, talk about UVM hoops since the game will have ended when I get here. I don't know yet exactly what time I'm going to be. So you're, you're rid of me, but you're not rid of me entirely. So I will be at the game tomorrow. I will be doing some work while I'm at the game. I'll call in on this show, report back from what I saw at this game. Again, I would say Toledo certainly is the favorite, but Nick will host the show. I am going to talk to Bob Sosi tomorrow morning. Bob actually has to tape tomorrow in advance. Nick is not going to be in the studio in time to tape in advance, so I'm going to talk to Bob. We're going to have the full interview available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast, but the interview is going to be fully cut up, and Nick's going to have all the clips from Bob Sosi to react to uh, in any way that he wants to. But the full interview with Bob will be on Tuesday, and I'm looking forward to uh, to all of you. Or uh, will be available on uh, social media, I should say. And I look forward to uh, all of you being able to hear that because Bob is great, and I certainly want to talk to Bob after what happened yesterday. So Nick Mumley in for me tomorrow. I'll be at UVM, and I'll call in, and you guys will treat Nick nicely. Okay? Treat Nick nicely. Text in on the text line. Converse with him. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to him, too, and he'll have a blast, and he'll do a great job. And then uh, he's going to fill in for me a couple of days next week when I'm off as well. I think we're going to do some college football bowl games next week also, but uh, Nick's going to be in here also next week. Not a great weekend for the Red Sox. First and foremost, Xander Bogarts delivered his Instagram post saying goodbye to Red Sox Nation, and what a tearjerker this was. So Bogey writes, Dear Red Sox Nation, Thank you for an incredible ride, and what a ride it was. It was an honor to wear the Red Sox uniform and play in front of the best and most knowledgeable fans in baseball. There were some highs and lows, but two World Series trophies during my time to celebrate with you all was absolutely incredible. Thank you to the Red Sox for taking a chance on a young kid from the island of Aruba. Thank you all to the coaches, athletic trainers, managers, and front office people who I've crossed paths with over the course of 14 years. Every single one of you impacted my life in more ways than one and helped me develop into the player I am today. And lastly, to every player that took the field with me in a Red Sox uniform, I say thank you. Thank you for being great teammates and great friends. So many of you taught me what it means to be a professional on the field and off. Thank you, Boston, until we meet again. So that was Andrew Bogarts uh, there in his Instagram goodbye. And, you know, a couple of takeaways from it. He called the Red Sox fans the best and most knowledgeable in all of baseball. I, I maintain this belief. I don't think Xander Bogarts wanted to go to San Diego. 
I think Xander Bogarts had to go to San Diego. Right? Because the Padres came and made such an offer, such an insane offer, that Xander Bogarts had to accept it. Now, I remember the story that Buster Olney told me several years ago that in 2009, C.C. Sabathia was a free agent. He wanted to play for the Angels. Wanted to. And I think they offered him $100 million. The Yankees offered him like 141. And the players' union was like, we don't care what you want. You've got to take this offer because that helps us all out. So C.C. had to go to the Yankees. Like he was mandated practically to go to the Yankees. And I think we're at similar stuff here with Bogarts. Like, the offer was so much better with the Padres. They're like, look, man, you got to take this offer because it helps all of us. A rising tide helps all lifts all boats. I don't think Xander Bogarts wants to be in San Diego. I think he has to be in San Diego. And he's waxing poetic about Boston. And he, he didn't have to say the best fans in baseball. He could have said they were great fans. But he said they were the best fans. I, I maintain it to this day. I think Xander Bogarts wants to still be in Boston. He just basically isn't allowed to be because of the offer. Red Sox also got bad news this weekend when Dansby Swanson signed with the Chicago Cubs. So that's it for the Red Sox in terms of big moves they can make in the infield, right? So Swanson goes to the Cubs, seven years, $177 million. It's a deal the Red Sox could have done. It's a deal very similar to what they probably could have gotten Bogarts for last offseason. And he goes to Chicago instead. Don't know what the Red Sox offer was. Don't know if they made an official offer. But seven for 177 is a deal that the Red Sox could have and should have made. And they didn't. So now I don't know what the Red Sox are going to do at shortstop. Now, they signed Justin Turner yesterday, two years, $22 million. And I actually think baseball-wise, that's a pretty good move. It's an underwhelming move, though, because you're looking to replace Xander Bogarts, and you didn't do that. Dansby Swanson could have served as a good replacement for Xander Bogarts. Justin Turner serves as an adequate replacement for J.D. Martinez. You still have a Bogart-sized hole in your lineup. So the Turner move is good. It's just not the replacement that this team really needs. Turner, though, I like it. Look, he his numbers are almost identical to JD's from a year ago. Turner's 38 years old, so he's older than JD. Uh, he, he and Martinez, their WRC plus in analytic terms, they were one point off from each other. Turner hit less home runs, but had 19 more RBIs. He had seven less doubles, but he hit for a higher batting average. He had a higher on-base percentage, had slightly less slugging. They're, they're basically a wash on each other. So I I like Justin Turner being in Boston. He's a right-handed bat. They need that. He could play DH. They need that. He could play a little bit of third. Could probably play a little bit of first and platoon with Tristan Casas on days they don't want him playing against the lefty. So I'm down with Justin Turner being here. It's a good baseball move. Give Hyam Bloom credit for that. It's just not the move that they needed to replace Xander Bogarts. So... That is going to do it for us here on the Brady Farkas Show on this Monday on WDEV. Reminder, the full show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com, as is our interview with Jim Deopolis, the former NFL head of officiating. So you can check that, that check that out. That interview is already up. So that was uh, that's awesome. We got that up so quickly. Nick Mumley in for me tomorrow. I will call in from uh, having watched UVM hoops. Catamounts taking on Toledo in what is a very big non-conference game. Second to last non-conference game for the Catamounts heading into the new year. 
Treat Nick nicely. He'll do a great job. And uh, Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next right here on WDEV, AM and FM at WDEVradio.com.